Amen. Praise God. If you weren't awake by now, now you are. Uh, so thankful for our worship team and the way that they continue to point us to Jesus, and, Jesus and, and usher us into the presence of God on these Sunday mornings together. Well, if you've been around for a while, you may know that Hope uh, is one church in multiple locations. And one of the, the benefits of that and being one church really in thousands of locations, thanks to uh, the digital outreach uh, that we have, is that from time to time, we get to hear from different uh, pastors and teachers and leaders uh, here at Hope. And so from time to time, all of our campuses, uh, not all the time, but just once in a while, uh, we will uh, gather all together. And on a weekend like this, we want to all kind of get on the same page at all of our campuses and local sites, as well as those that are worshiping this morning across the globe online with us as well to all hear uh, the same message. So normally you'd hear from myself and in a few weeks, can't wait to do some tag team preaching with Pastor Hurst uh, from Elam. So you'll get plenty of that over the next uh, couple months. But once, once a quarter or so, once in a while, we like to all hear from our senior pastor, Mike Householder, and this is an important weekend for that. Not only uh, is there a few things going on in the news uh, these days, but we are kicking off a brand new series today that we're really, really excited about, Stuff Jesus Didn't Say, or Jesus Didn't Say That. Just as you and I oftentimes get misquoted or misunderstood, probably no one has been misquoted more in the history of the world than Jesus, right? Uh, and misunderstood and used for all sorts of different reasons. And so we're going to be diving into that series and tackling some big topics, some big issues uh, in our world over the next couple weeks. But as we often do, we would encourage you to follow along, uh, even though the sermon is coming from uh, Pastor Mike in West Des Moines at the same time he knows he's speaking to you and to all the campuses uh, as well. And so we encourage you, if you brought your Bible from home, have that out, ready to go to dive in. We're going to do some Bible study today in the sermon. I'm excited about that, uh, as well as follow along, read along. Uh, on the screen as well. And as always, if Mike tells a joke or says something funny, just as you do for me, humor him and laugh, even if you don't think it's funny. It's okay to laugh in church. Uh, I just want to tell you that uh, as well. But we love it that you are here this morning as we prepare our hearts for this message. Let's join our hearts together in a word of prayer. God, we love you and we thank you that we get to sing about your love this morning. God, you're the one that, that got us up today that fills our breath with lungs. And we thank you that as we just heard song about God, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to be ourselves. Freedom to walk in these doors this morning as we are and not as we should be. Regardless of what we look like, what we feel like, where we live, what's going on in our lives, our past, our mistakes. Jesus, you receive us just as we are, and yet you refuse to leave us that way. And so that is our prayer this morning as we turn into your word that you would leave us changed, transformed. Because where your word goes out, Jesus, we know that the promise is that it will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And so would you make our hearts that soft soil that you talk about in your word, God, to receive your word. You are the potter and we are the clay, so mold us and shape us in the way that you want us to be. May we be conformed not to any, anything else, no agenda of this world, but be conformed to your son, Jesus Christ, this morning. God, thank you for the opportunities to calm our hearts and our spirits and, and find you in the stillness and the silence, God. But also, we thank you that we're a part of a church, God, that takes you very seriously, but not ourselves too seriously as well. So lighten our spirits and the mood in this place today, God. We love you, and we pray all of this in your name. And all God's people said together, amen. amen. Mark Brandt, he says he supports the teachings of the Old Testament, but each week he greets viewers on Hope's online streaming service, and what's newer, 
than the internet. When he baptizes others, he stands waist deep in living water. Has he never heard of anointing with oil? And the last time one of Mark's children misbehaved, he blatantly chose to spare the rod, instead giving him a strong talking to. Mark Brandt, too modern, not Old Testament enough for us. Paid for by the Foundation for Old Testament Values. Can we really trust Perry Ross to be a worship leader? He says that we're saved through a new covenant, but just this month, he was exposed as supporting old-timey hymns. Oh, Perry. And when leading worship, Perry always stands in front of an altar. Getting ready to sacrifice something, Perry? So Old Testament. And what is his mustache saying? New life or old-fashioned? Tell Perry Ross, enough of this Old Testament business. It's time for someone who represents the gospel 110%. I'm Levi Hansen, and I approve this message. I don't know. If you've been around Hope, you recognize that. We show that from time to time. That's like the second or third time, I think. But if you're new, it's new to you. And if you're not, it's still fun. And it still applies. I think it's timely. Uh, I'm here to tell you who to vote for today. I'm just kidding. There is an election coming up. Maybe you've heard. Uh, And I don't even want to be flip about that. I I want to tell you what the Bible says about these things. And I think that's really important. But if you came here wanting to see if, you know, you could test out this church politically to see if we fit into your politics, a little bit of a surprise for you. Uh, We are not here to fit into your politics. We don't care if we fit into your politics. What we care about is making sure that we follow the one who calls us as king of all kings and lord of all lords. And so we are here to test our politics with God's word, not the other way around. Uh, We are here to put first things first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus teaches. Major teaching in the New Testament. Then all these other things will follow. Uh, And I'm really honored to do this. I, I woke up on Saturday morning. Usually by Saturday morning, the sermon is done and it's ready. And I just need to focus on, I spend Saturday memorizing it and and thinking through it a little bit more detail, but it's almost always done when I wake up, uh, except for those details. So I was a little um, nervous when I woke up on Saturday, just yesterday, and I thought, oh no, this is kind of crazy because I I had a dream. And if you've been around Hope for 20 some years, you can count on one hand the number of times I've stood up here and said, I think God gave me a dream and I think I'm supposed to tell this to you, supposed to preach this, but God gave me a dream, and it was bizarre, because I was standing up in front of you, and he told me in the middle of this sermon that I had already prepared to preach about Jonah, you know, Jonah and the whale, only it's not a whale, it's a big fish, but that's another sermon for another day, I, I was like, what, Lord, does Jonah have to do with our topic, our theme, what we're focused on, the Bible-based theme we have prepared, and we prayed over, how, how is it that you're throwing me a curveball on Saturday morning, I'm going to do a week's worth of sermon prep somehow before five o'clock. And then my wife said, well, why don't you, when I told her this, she said, why don't you just read Jonah? It's short. It's just four chapters long in the Old Testament. It's a great story. And I did, and immediately I got it. And so I just want to share this with you today. God, uh, in the story, says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, uh, a city of 120,000 people, and I want you to tell them 
that I'm still for them, even though I've seen their wicked ways, even though I've seen their evil, even though I've seen the darkness, even though I've seen what they do wrong, even though I've seen their immorality, whatever it might be. It's all summed up as just saying, I I know, I can't ignore it anymore, God says to Jonah, so I'm sending you. I'm sending you to tell them that I still love them. I'm sending you to tell them this good news. I'm sending you as my prophet. That's what Jonah is, a prophet. I'm sending you as a prophet to go and tell them this good news, to call them back to me. Well, Jonah does something that was a huge mistake. He does the opposite. Here's a rule of thumb in life. Don't eat yellow snow. Here's a second rule of thumb in life. Don't eat anything bigger than your head in one sitting. Here's a third rule of thumb in life. If God tells you to go to Nineveh, don't go to Tarshish, which is geographically almost the opposite direction. Why did Jonah do that? Real simply, he did that because he didn't like the Ninevites. He didn't think they deserved God's love. He didn't think they deserved uh, grace or mercy or forgiveness. He didn't think they deserved his, his, his blessings. He couldn't stand them. And Jonah probably hung out with a bunch of friends who when they got together, one of their favorite subjects was how much they hated the Ninevites. How lost and immoral and wrong they were. How, how off base they were. How, how, t- how, how they didn't qualify for, for God's blessings and love because of who they were and how they lived. And so therefore they were out and he and his friends were in. I know I preach to a smart church so I don't think you need me to connect the dots. But that's the way our world sounds these days. A lot like Jonah. Well, God, these people don't agree with me politically. They vote a different way than I vote, and I don't want to bring your blessings to them. I don't want to love them. I don't, I don't want to have any room for them. I want to, I, it's more comfortable for me, and all of my friends tell me I should, and they show me that they do. It'd be more comfortable for me just to dismiss them, and I can kind of fit in with the rest of the world. And because of that, Jonah ends up getting swallowed by a big fish. I'm not saying you're going to get swallowed by a big fish if you do that, but I am saying God doesn't want you to do that. In chapter 1, Jonah completely messes up. In chapter 2, when he's in the belly of the big fish, things start to turn around for Jonah because he's humbled himself, because he's repenting, which I preached about last week, which are the things that lead to revival, which our world needs. But we don't have any humility, and we don't have a repentant spirit, so we're going to miss it completely. Jonah isn't going to miss it because I mean, it's hard to get more humbled than being in the belly of a big fish. Somehow, miraculously, he survives, but while he's there, he confesses and he starts to repent and he starts to worship God. By chapter 3, he's spit out and he's left on the beach. And from there, Jonah gets up and he goes to the great city of Nineveh and he delivers the message that God has given to him. He has had his heart completely converted and changed. It's not that he necessarily agrees. He doesn't agree with them at all. But he realizes that just because you don't agree with somebody on the other side of the political aisle doesn't mean you can dismiss them, at least not if you're living for the king of all kings. You would think, then, that the whole story ends happily ever after because Jonah brings God's love and blessings to the Ninevites. The the ruler of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, repents confesses, converts, the the whole city follows his lead, and they come back to God, and they all live happily ever after, right? That's how it should have ended, but then Jonah fell back. He backslid. He he, he fell back into his old chapter one sort of ways, and at the beginning of chapter four, you can read it in your Bibles, or it's up on the screen, Jonah yelled at God. 
After it's all the after the Ninevites have come back to God, Jonah's prejudice against them, he, he couldn't contain it anymore. He says, God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. He's justifying what he did in the first chapter. He's justifying his rebellion against God. God, I've declared and I judge they don't deserve your love, so therefore you shouldn't love them. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I did what I did. You should have let me do it. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy as if those are bad things. Not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. Jonah had his eyes on the wrong prize. He was focused on the kingdom of this world and the things in this world that he didn't like instead of the kingdom of heaven, instead of things that last, what's here is temporary, what's here is permanent, and lasts forever. So here's what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Words matter. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. Words matter so much we're dedicating this whole month and we're, we're not going to preach on the same subject each week. We're going to cover four very different subjects. But we're going to have this as the common thread and theme is, did Jesus really say that? We're calling the sermon series, Jesus Didn't Say That, because Jesus is getting misquoted a lot these days. Maybe you hear it. Maybe you hear people say, well, we just, we just, uh, we, we want to, we care so much about our worldly agenda that we want to make it sound like God is for it. And we're going to go ahead and proof text some stuff and pull things away from their context. And we're going, to, we're going to go ahead and even make up some things that Jesus said and misquote them and stuff that he never really said. It's very dangerous to do. Look, I know I'm preaching to a church that doesn't completely agree politically, doesn't agree at all sometimes politically. I love that about you. I love that about this church. And, and wherever you are right now, whatever campus you're at, uh, if you're at Hope Ames or Hope Ankeny or Hope Waukee or Hope Grimes or if you are uh, at one of our local sites or specifically today, if you are at Hope Elam for the first time taking the sermon live, praise God for all you guys. We're glad that you're here. Not sure which camera's on. Oh, there you are. Hi, everybody. No matter who you are or, or where you come from or how you see these things politically, Please don't misunderstand me. It matters. This is not going to be a sermon that says politics don't matter. Forget about that stuff. It's no, no big deal. It's a huge deal. The election on Tuesday is huge. It's important. If you believe all the ads, it's the most important election in the history of this country, which I've noticed in my lifetime they say every four years and sometimes every two years. The most important election ever. This is it. Man, there's a lot of fear on both sides. For those of you who are passionate politically, and you're absolutely welcome here. You can be as passionate as you want. Encourage you to be if that's your thing. If you're passionate politically on the left, if you hang out with the donkey, you're, you're worried about fascism. If, you, if you're passionately political on the right, you're worried about socialism and, and, and a lot of fear in the midst of all that. I, I want to pause there and just say, Remember what Jesus says to his disciples in the midst of the storms, after he calms the storms. Where's your faith? Remember the Old Testament that God has endured horrible leaders, absolutely atrocious, evil leaders, unlike our nation has ever seen before, way beyond Hitler-level type leaders. 
And he has not only endured them, he's worked through it for good in the midst of those times and those seasons. Cyrus, for example, back in the day. Or go through the history of the Old Testament and read about the various kings and leaders of of Israel and Judah, God's own people. Some of them were very faithful and some of whom were the opposite of very faithful. God never wrung his hands up and never said, oh no, what am I going to do now? I've got the wrong leader. God's God. God's got this. We're going to be okay. I don't even mean some of those leaders, some of those rulers meant the, the future of the nation was, was, was put on a trajectory that wasn't good for the nation and sometimes their kingdoms fell into exile. I'm not up here to prophesy or predict any of that will or will not happen or to say that it isn't important. It's very important. But I'm telling you, That if you're looking for a church where everybody agrees politically, I will tell you, you've probably found a church where they have put politics above God's word, where they are leading with political views on things and then trying to drag God along into it instead of starting with the challenge of God's word to their politics. Does your politics put God to the test or does God's word put your politics to the test? Are you somebody who supports the the donkey? Are you somebody who supports the elephant? Or are you somebody who supports the lion, who is Jesus Christ, according to the Bible? Because in this church, that's where we go. And so we say for all of you who are all in with the donkey and all of you who are all in with the elephant, you're in the right place. And all of you who are somewhere in the middle, you're in the right place. Because we have found that the lion has the power to unite what the world says could not be united, could not come together. We have found that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, allows leaders in this city, in this county, in this state, in this, in this country. We've had people lead nationally politically who are now back in Des Moines. It, it matters incredibly how your politics line up with God's will. Not saying it doesn't at all. Just saying that it's the lion who's the one who has the power to unite. And I'm also saying this. Who gets your highest allegiance? The elephant, the donkey, or the lion? The left wing, the right wing, or the creator of the bird? Who gets that kind of level of authority in your life? I mean, the ultimate authority. To, 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 to say, this is my entire view on everything. Maybe once in a while we should test the donkey and the elephant out with the lion and make sure that it's in full alignment with what God's will is for this world because God cares deeply for the kingdom of this world even though he is a kingdom of heaven God. More on that as we go. So Revelation 5 says Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Proverbs 30 verse 30 says that the lion is mighty among beasts and retreats before nothing. He's not intimidated by the donkey. He's not intimidated by the elephant. Does not bend a knee before either one. Neither should you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the lion comes first. So what does Jesus really say? If that's the name of our sermon series, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who find ways to make peace in the midst of divided times. You say, oh, now, I'll bet you he's not going to talk about what Jesus said a few chapters later about peace. Yeah, actually, I am. Matthew 10, Jesus says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. And you say, aha, see, he says people are going to be divided politically. uh, And that's okay, because he came to make sure that you're lined up with him politically. 
No, he's not talking about kingdom of this world. He's talking about kingdom of heaven. And he's saying it all depends on whether you have faith in me. That's what will divide. Politics shouldn't. Politics should divide you, can divide on issues or can ha- have, uh, pr- promote two different visions for the same future. But they shouldn't divide relationships. They shouldn't break relationships. They shouldn't break people apart. Because Jesus is here to remind us to put away our swords 16 chapters later when he says to Peter, put away your sword. Those who use the sword are going to die by it too. Remember Ted Stryker in the movie Airplane? <laughs> I love that movie. One of my all-time favorites, which says too much about me. He's sweating bullets as he's trying to land this plane, and he's pretending it's all good, nothing to worry about. I want to make sure you don't misunderstand me, because if you aren't careful, you can hear this and say, oh, so okay, the Bible says politics don't matter, or justice doesn't matter, or morality doesn't matter. Of course it does. They dress the wound of my people as if it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, where there is no peace. God speaks through the prophet to his people, through the prophet Jeremiah. They say, we're going to pretend there's peace just to pretend there's peace. So cue the Bobby McFerrin song, don't worry, be happy, and we'll just pretend everything's all good. That's not what God is calling us to do and to be. God cares deeply about this world. He loves this world so much that he sent his one and only son into this world to die for this world, which gives us a chance to connect from this world to a kingdom that is eternal and lasts forever. But here's the thing. We care a lot about these things. Let's let's make a box and say this is all the things that we care about. And each check mark is, is a different, really important issue injustices that need to be made right, broken things that that need to be fixed and made wrong, causes that are worth standing up for, oppression that's worth standing up against. It's the sanctity of life and making sure that we we value what God has created. And and we can go on and on and on and say there's the economy and jobs and and how this virus is handled. And it's, it's all part of a smaller box within the box, which is this election and politics. And, and that's a pretty big deal. And it's a big deal to God, too. Some things that are less altruistic, we say, well, we care about um, being popular and being famous and getting rich and having bigger houses and faster cars and, 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 and being able to take vacations anywhere we want and And these things are all important. This is the stuff in the box. You do not have to dismiss the stuff in the box as irrelevant or unimportant in order to be faithful. God cares a lot about the box. God cares a lot about the details of your life. I know how many hairs are on your head, God says. I I know when a sparrow falls from heaven. I I know details about you you don't even know. I care deeply about every check mark inside of this box. And I want you to follow my will for these things. I want you to live for these things in a righteous way. But here's the thing. It's, it's all inside a box. And, and if we just talk about this and say, well, we, 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 we need to follow God and, and we need to focus on heaven and it doesn't matter what's in the box or what's here in the kingdom of this world, we lose sight of why God has created us and what we're doing here in this world. Martin Luther King, who was a prophet, was a pastor, a Christian pastor, who uh, was called to be a prophet in the 1960s, summarized the biblical truth of this with these words. 
He said, love that does not satisfy justice is no love at all. It's merely a sentimental affection. Love at its best is justice that becomes concrete. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. I hear a lot of Christians say, well, we just have to tolerate each other then. We just have to, you know, be nice. Midwestern nice to one another. And that's enough. But actually God calls us to be more than nice. Calls us to be more than civil. Calls us to be more than tolerating the Ninevites. Whoever the Ninevites are for you or for me. For me, it's Viking fans, but I love them anyway. I, I, I still, you know, the Bears are playing the Saints today on All Saints Sunday. I don't know who arranged that, but that's unfair. So here we are, living in this world, and we say, so, so, you know, my passions, my hobbies, my sports, my kids' achievements and their trophies, and them getting straight A's in, in, in school, that's what matters. That's the most important thing, and that's the way we live a lot of times. Like it is the only thing, or by far the most important thing. And if it's most important to us, well then, we're just going to say it's most important to God. If some social issue of our day is most important to us, we're gonna, that's got to be most important to God too then. Even though you don't have the biblical evidence to support it. Even though there's precious few things that you can pull out of Scripture to support that. And if you read all of Scripture, you start to realize God has something way more in mind. And it's not just being kind and nice to each other, although that is a part of love, and being civil and tolerate each other. It's, well, God raises the stakes. Jesus does when he says, love your enemies. He says, I I need you to love one another. I need you to love the Ninevites in your life. I need you to not dismiss them. I need you to not assume God doesn't love them just as much as he loves you, because he does. So if you live and you surround yourself only with people who become echo chambers for you, who all you do is complain about the Ninevites in your life, and you build your whole worldview on how at least you aren't them, and you don't stand where they stand, you're missing the best part of it, as important as that part is. We need more of this. We need more of love and unity. Jesus says, I pray that they would all be one. In 1992, which at the time was the most important election ever, (laughs) Bill Clinton was running against George H.W. Bush for president. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And they were bitter opponents politically. They had two very different visions for the future of this country. And and they debated and they they fought and they campaigned and they did their commercials and and all that sort of stuff. And after the dust settled and, and they both retired, they became best friends. I know that might bother some of you. But this is the example that Scripture sets for us. And it's not that they ever said, oh, well, we totally agree. We're going to pretend we agree politically now. We're just going to kind of build some sort of superficial friendship. They they don't agree. But when George Bush got older and was very sick right before he died and was confined to a wheelchair, he got a surprise visit from one of his best friends, Bill Clinton, who showed up on his birthday and gave him a pair of socks. What's kind of funny about that is they were blue socks that had the impression of Bill Clinton's face on them. And they both got a really good laugh out of that. Because their relationship matters even more than their politics, which of course they're both very passionate about and they care deeply about. At Senator McCain's funeral, all the presidents showed up and their, their spouses and George W. Bush always sits next to Michelle Obama as they tell the story because it's protocol, it's the order that they were presidents and, and so they have developed a friendship. 
In fact, they call it more than a friendship. When they're interviewed, they both say, oh, we love each other as, sisters and brother, as a sister and brother in Christ. At Senator McCain's funeral, Michelle Obama got a little cough in her throat, and George Bush just kind of calmly grabbed a, an Altoid. I, I looked this story up. It was an Altoid, just so you know. I care about the details for you folks. And he took the Altoid from his wife, and he, without even moving, he just kind of passes it over to Michelle. They didn't know the cameras were on at the time, but they captured it. And look, all four of them are having a good smile about it. Because they know the relationship is more important than the politics, even though they care deeply about their politics. And they both have been quoted saying, oh, don't get me wrong, we don't agree politically. There's still things that the Ninevites see and believe that that I don't agree with, but I'm not going to dismiss them out of hand because I disagree. I pray, Jesus says about us, my followers, the followers of the lion. I pray that whether they hang out with the elephant or the donkey, that they would see themselves as one. That what I call for supersedes what their political forces might call for. That I have something better in mind. That I have a vision. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Pray for those who persecute you. In Luke chapter 18, he puts it this way. God will see that his chosen ones get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Do you see what Jesus did there? Back to the box. Justice is in this box. Justice matters. It matters to God. It should matter to us. The Bible has all sorts of stories that talk about how important justice is to God, for God and for God's people about how we stand against injustice together, how we don't turn a blind eye to it, how we, if we're going to be faithful followers and children of God, will stand against the same injustices God stands against. But then Jesus makes this turn. He says, as important as that is, the justice will come, and it will come quickly. However, even more important, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth in your heart? Because faith is the thing that gets us from here to here. Faith is the thing in the Jesus who came and died here on the cross and rose from the dead to win a victory for us over all the things in this world which end. Because this world is temporary. This realm is permanent. Which one gets your highest allegiance? Which one gets your most attention? Which one do you focus on the most? Here's why this is a big issue for God in Scripture and a big issue for Jesus Christ as he teaches us things like this. Justice is important, but what I'm looking for is faith, hope, and love because those things are permanent. The relationships that faith, hope, and love start to create in this world last forever in the kingdom of heaven. All the stuff inside the box, all the other stuff, the achievements, the trophies, the successes, the big houses, the fast cars, even the good causes, the justice, the the, the moral issues, the social issues, the standing up for the righteous things of God inside this box, all of those fade away. Every single one fades away. So when we say what's in the box is more important, even though it's temporary, that's the problem with everything in the box, it doesn't last. So when we say this is more important than that, we've lost our biblical balance. This lasts forever, and so it is more important. This lasts forever, and so it should be the thing, as Jesus teaches, 
that he wants to know the most. Be people of faith and hope and love, because those things last. Jesus sums it up this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. For the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are fulfilled and based on these two commandments. All of them. The problem with losing our perspective on this, our kingdom of heaven perspective on this, is if we get so focused in on the box, on one hand, it's a problem if we say the box doesn't matter. Of course it does. Be involved. Vote. Pour into it. Pray about your vote. Pray about who you're going to support and why, and does it align with biblical values, the timeless truth of God. But it's the box. Keep your perspective on it. Keep your faith in the God who is the God of all of these things, who isn't just the donkey or the elephant inside the box, but who's the lion of the whole page of all of existence. The problem with minimizing the box too much is God cares about the box. The problem with saying it's all about the box and God's going to come and bless the things that I'm into and that's the most important. What could be more important than this election? What could be more important than our political fights? What could be more important than all these things? Well, everything outside the box could be more important for starters. Let me ask it as a question in the most direct way I possibly can. Because this is where Jonah tripped up. And I think that's why God gave me that dream. If you met somebody for the first time who disagreed with you, polar opposite disagreement with you politically, and at the same time you discovered that person you just met doesn't know Jesus Christ, which one does your heart want to change first? Their politics or their faith? Which one is going to last longer? Are you so passionate about changing their politics and winning the political debate that at best will make the box better? And that's important. Go for it. Have the passionate debate. It matters. But in the process of winning the debate in here, you push that person away from the kingdom of heaven? What have you gained? What did you win? What did the kingdom get? Are we really willing to sacrifice blessings that are permanent for blessings that are temporary? Are we really willing to give up on the kingdom of heaven, not just for us, but for the people around us, and say, I would rather win the argument inside the box with you and go to the wall on that and, and bet all of my chips, move them all in on that, like that's the most important thing, and ignore the bigger things, the stuff that's permanent and lasts forever. This is why Jesus says... Follow me. Follow me and I'll set you free. Be people of faith and hope and love, the stuff that lasts. In the Gospel of John, it rolls out this way. Chapter 1, seven different times it says this. Here's four to sum it up. It begins, the Word became flesh. The Word, the Greek word, original Greek word of John chapter 1, verse 14 is logos. Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the logos, the Word. And the Word, the logos, was God and the Word was with God. What is that? Start to unpack it and it becomes crystal clear. A fifth grader can start to wor work this out. The word, the logos, became flesh, became human. It's the Christmas story. It's Jesus coming into this world. And that becomes very clear as we read on through John's gospel. But it's already here in the first chapter. The logos. The logos is the same power of God to create the entire universe with a word. Let there be light is his word, and bam, there's light. 
Step back from that just a moment and consider. Let that sweep over you. There is a power, there is a force that's big enough and strong enough. A word, a logos, is the way to sum it up. Logos doesn't just mean a a word that's written on a piece of paper, a word that's spoken out of somebody's mouth. It's connected to the divine. It's connected to the creator of the universe, the logos. The logos takes a sentence and says, let there be light, and it's done. And God creates the entire universe that way with a word. And God creates you that way, taking the dust of the ground and breathing his spirit, his life into it. And so you become a being. You become. You are. You exist because of the logos of God, because God speaks you into existence. God says it's so, and you are. This word became a human being, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus Christ, who is the logos of God in human form. Oh my. Your picture of the lion is probably too small. And perhaps your picture and your vision of the elephant or the donkey is a little too big because the power of this logos The Bible will say later in the New Testament and testify, the fullness of God's deity, all of God's logos power dwells bodily in the person of this Jesus Christ. The power to create an entire universe. The power to create you and to bring life to you. It's like when a scientist looks at cells under a microscope of of a human being and you, you start to realize, oh my goodness, how did all that get there? The intricacies, the puzzle pieces, the way a creator creates and puts it all together, the power for that, the, the, the brilliance, the intelligence, the wisdom to put that all together. The power of that God is in Jesus Christ. He isn't just another king. He isn't just another religious rabbi. He isn't just a moral teacher. He isn't just somebody who's coming here for the box. He's coming here for the whole thing. He's coming here for stuff that's permanent and stuff that's eternal and not just stuff that's going to last our lifetime or a generation or even a few generations to come in this world when we think about the direction of this country. Important, very, very important, but it's just the box. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist testifies. You don't say that about a rabbi, about a moral teacher. You say that about God who shows up in the flesh. We found the Messiah, which means the anointed one of God. You are the Son of God, another disciple says just eight verses later. You are the King. Everyone say King. You are the king of Israel. You are the king of all kings. You turn the page to John chapter 2, and here comes Jesus going to a wedding party. His mother Mary is there. They run out of wine. She says, Jesus, we got a problem. The whole wedding feast is going to have to stop. And in first century Palestine, weddings were week-long celebrations. I don't know if this is day two, day three, day four, but it's a problem. If we don't have wine, everybody's going to go home. The party's going to be over. Jesus says something very peculiar in response, which puts this whole box and kingdom thing in perspective. He says, my hour has not yet come. What? Your mom just asked you to get some wine. Woman, my hour has not yet come. Will 
learn later as we read through John's gospel that what Jesus means is the hour of salvation, the hour when he goes to the cross, the hour when he dies for us, the hour when he opens the gate from this world to the kingdom of heaven, the hour when he makes all right which has gone wrong. My hour isn't here. I'm not here just to turn water into wine and keep the party going inside this box, but it does matter. So bring me the water. Boom, turns it into wine. The party goes on. He cares about the box. But before he turns the water into wine, before he takes care of the box, he reminds his own mother, I'm here for more. I'm here for way more. And you should be too, as people who hang out with the lion. It is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up, Jesus says to Nicodemus just one chapter later, that whoever believes in me, in him, may have eternal life. He's the king of all kings. He's the one who breaks down all the barriers that nobody else can break down for us. Who gets your highest allegiance again? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says to some religious leaders he's having a fight with, because they say, what are you saying? You're as good as Abraham, who was the George Washington of Israel? Are you saying you're as big of a deal as him? No, Jesus says, I'm saying I'm a bigger deal than him. I'm way bigger, as big as he is. Before Abraham even was, I am. And his word choice there is very specific. It's ego me in the Greek, and in the Hebrew, it is Yahweh. It's the same name God gave to Moses in the burning bush when Moses says, God, what do I tell your people your name is? And he says, my name is I am. Yahweh in the Hebrew, ego me in the Greek. The rest of John's gospel, Jesus goes on and says, ego me, I am the bread of life. I am the water that quenches your thirst for life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I'm the gate to eternal life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Not a way, truth, and life, but the way, truth, and life. My kingdom, Jesus summarizes it by saying, is not of this world. <laughs> I like this part. So we aren't of this world, but we're of this world, which is why you don't feel at home sometimes. But we're in this world, the Bible says. So we're not of this world, but we're in it, which is why we don't always feel at home, which is why we feel frustrated sometimes, which is why we feel incomplete, dissatisfied souls, because we belong here. We're citizens of heaven, the Bible says, but we live here. And if we aren't careful, we're going to say, not only do we live, we're going to ignore the parts of the world we don't care about, and we say, all that really matters is the stuff I'm into in the box. And God's here to remind us of something that'll set us free. He says, you don't belong to this world, but you belong to the kingdom of heaven. You're of heaven, but you're in this world. You belong to heaven, but you are, this is the fun part, you're sent into this world to bring your light to Nineveh, whatever your Nineveh is, to bring the power of God's love to all people, and to make sure nothing in your life becomes more important than that, not even the stuff in the box, because this stuff doesn't last, and that you won't do things inside this box to keep people from the permanent gift of heaven, that you won't trip up over debates and dismissals and canceling each other because you want to win that fight, how important it is, and you lose sight of where you belong. Here's the analogy I'll use to help bring this home for some of you. When I was a younger father and our daughter was a little girl, we went to Worlds of Fun. 
And I found myself as a six foot five inch man inside the kiddie boat ride. I did not belong in the kiddie boat ride, but I was sent into the kiddie boat ride to put my knees up into my eyes because I love my daughter. I was in the boat, I was not of the boat. I did not belong to the boat, but I was sent into the boat. If you get it, say got it, get it? Good, that's you in the world. You don't belong here, it's why you don't fit in. It's why it's so frustrating sometimes. It's why you trip over things a lot. It's why you have dissatisfied souls, it's why I do. It's why you look and you go, oh, come on! Are you serious? This is what we have to deal with. But then God reminds us, yeah, but I sent you to go and tell the people you're so frustrated with how much I love them. That is your main purpose here. Because that's the stuff that lasts forever. You don't belong here, but you have a mission here. How are you doing on that mission? What is God doing through you? What are you accomplishing? My followers do not belong to this world any more than I do, Jesus says. But this world matters. Because just as you sent me, Father, into the world, I'm sending them. We're sent. You want to look under the microscope at the Bible with me as I wrap things up? The Bible nerds here are like, amen, I love these kinds of sermons when we get into this part. The rest of you are like, five-minute nap time. Actually, we'll make it three, okay? (laughs) Jesus is put on trial by a worldly power. He is not of this world, but he's in this world, and he gets put on trial. Pontius Pilate is the governor, and he's the executioner. And he holds Jesus' earthly life in his hands. That's all true. So why isn't Jesus intimidated? Why isn't he nervous about it? Why isn't he freaking out? Why is he saying, what could be more important than my life? Well, a kingdom perspective is keeping him from freaking out. Knowing who he is is keeping him from freaking out. So there's this beautiful chiasm or or parallelism in all of the scriptures, but especially John's gospel, which is so elegantly written. It's the kind of thing that a human being couldn't write. Because there's these movements, these sweeps, that unless you get a microscope out, you'll never see them. You'll just read words on a page, you'll be like, oh, I don't really understand what that means. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says, line one. Line two, if my kingdom was of this world, line three, my subjects would fight, line four, so that I would not be betrayed to any worldly power, including you, Pilate. My kingdom doesn't belong to this world. If you're noticing some repetition, you're catching it. Line one and line five are the same thing. Line two and line four are both explanations. Sandwiched in between is line three, where Jesus says, you think you've got the power, Pilate, because you've been, you're, in a, you're, you're on a throne. You've got an office. But it's worldly. Jesus isn't getting into a big fight with him, but you notice Jesus isn't saying anything. Zoom out into John 18 and 19, which is Jesus' entire trial, and it's an even bigger, broader chiasm through chapters 18 and 19. And here we'll highlight line two and line six. This is the only time Jesus speaks while he's on trial. The rest of his his silence is so powerful. He's like, I don't need to answer to you, Pilate. The only time he does is when they're talking about what real power is. What really is a king? What really is a national leader? What really is power? What, re- what is it really all about? Here in chapter 18, Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, well, you, you say I'm a king. 
And then we get that chiasm. It, it wraps around like a horseshoe, the parallelism, and it just pops off the page. And we zoom back out and we get the broader one and we go to chapter 19 where Jesus talks and Jesus and Pilate have this brief conversation about power. Pilate, out of fear, starts to realize, oh my goodness, I'm getting a glimpse of the fact that I'm not just dealing with somebody who's living inside the box here. I, I never think outside the box, but I'm starting to realize that I'm in a conversation and I'm in a situation that's way bigger than a box. And Pilate is absolutely right about that. His senses are keenly aware that this is way bigger than his office, way bigger than his worldly power. But out of fear and insecurity, he shoots back at Jesus. Don't you know I hold your life in my hands? Give me something here, Jesus, because what could be more important than me sparing your life? What could be more important than fighting for the lives of people in this world, which is about as important as it gets in this world? In no way do I want to minimize that. One thing, life that doesn't end, ever. That would be worth fighting for more. So Jesus says to Pilate, you hold nothing in your hands that hasn't been given to you, listen to this part, from above. You've got nothing because of your worldly power. You're only written into this scene because it needed to happen. Because I needed to die for something more. For a kingdom that has no end. Wow. <laughs> okay, pull back from the microscope. Bible geek time is over. Let's bring it into today. On the next screen, you're going to see a list of 94 sisters and brothers in Christ in our church family who've died since last All Saints, which is today. 94 loved ones. What do you think they would tell us, if they could, about what matters most? The election or faith in the lion who brings us from here to here. What do you think their perspective is on that now? Because I will tell you that someday your name will be on this screen. So will mine. Because that's life in this fallen, messed up world. And if all we ever live for is the box, we're going to miss the blessing. So why don't we start living with that perspective now? The whole Bible teaches over and over and over and over again. This is what it means when it says, stop fighting over things that aren't going to last. Stop breaking relationships over things that aren't going to last. Stop dividing churches up over things that aren't going to last. Stop accusing one another of the ultimate crime because you disagree about something inside the box. Passionately disagree about it and get a bigger kingdom perspective on these things. The kind of thing that an All Saints Day so blatantly does for us. And so Jesus sums it all up by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letter of the entire Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And we live even while we are in this world. And we don't belong to it, but we're in it and we're sent to it. So we live for faith and hope and love even more than we live for the things inside the box. And we live for pointing people to faith and hope and love, which will allow them to cross the bridge from this kingdom to this, which will allow them to go from temporary things, even from temporary injustices, and bring them to a permanent justice, to a permanent life. Who else can give you this but the lion? So let me ask you one more time. For you, ultimately, at the highest levels of authority, is it the elephant, the donkey, or is it the lion, church? Is it the lion of, Je of Jesus Christ? We have a name for this lion, for our faith, our hope, and our love. And his name is what? Shout it out from every campus. What's his name? Shout it out. What's his name? Follow him, and he will set this whole world free. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song. I got to get my mask. <laughs> Let's stand together. The lion of Judah is not just in an old historical book. He's here. He's present. The power of God, the word of God, the logos, the word of God is present and active in this place right now and he's here to meet with us. When we celebrate Holy Communion and we celebrate a God that came from above to the earth below, to the people that he loves, to you and I that he loves, so that we could not just know about him, but know him. And it was because of that that when Jesus gathered with those same disciples, just like you and I, that always didn't get it, but he looked them in the eyes across the table. And when it was time in the Passover meal, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. This is how much I love you and care about what's in the box. But let me point you to something way bigger and way more important. And after supper, he took the cup. And after he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, take and drink. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is my promise to you that I will wash you clean. As you take your communion kit that you received on the way in, before we receive that together, Jesus taught us a prayer. And by no coincidence in that prayer, he points us to not a worldly kingdom, but building his kingdom. The words will be on the screen as we pray that prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So if you have your kid, if you haven't already, go ahead and take that first layer off and take the wafer, the bread, and we receive that together. Go ahead and take that, the body of Christ broken for you. And then if you would, take the second layer off. Let's do that gently. And then we receive the grape juice together, the blood of Christ shed for you. Even though communion looks a little bit different 
these days. It's the same power. It's the same presence of Jesus Christ that now that you have received that, may you know that your sins, your guilt, your shame, your past, your fears, your anxiety have been nailed to the cross. That you have received the Holy Spirit, that you have received the love and the grace and a brand new way of Jesus Christ this morning and he has set you free to worship him and to live for him and to live out the most important mission that we have as a church is to share his love with the world around us. Amen? That is where our hope is at and that is how we're going to close today as you would remain standing. Let's sing this out together with everything that we've got. Hope has a name and his name is Jesus. Amen.